Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone, this is the 20 Questions podcast. Over the last couple of years, I've managed to persuade a number of famous people to answer our 20 questions. It's always the same 20 questions, and those questions are about their life, their times, their careers, their families, their highs and lows. And we also ask them what their favourite five music tracks are. Always a difficult thing to do. Now, as this is a podcast, we're not allowed to actually play the music, but I've left those answers in because in every case, it's always interesting to hear what sort of music people like. Now, the interviews were done some time ago, so there are some odd time references. Obviously, some things have been and gone, but I think it's still interesting to hear. In this podcast, we're talking to Alan Arthur Johnson. Alan was the Labour MP for Hull West and Hessel up until the 2017 general election when he stood down. But in government, he served as Education Secretary, Health Secretary, Home Secretary, and he was the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer for a while. He's an absolutely fascinating character, started his career as a postman. But the story of his early teenage years is particularly heartrending, and I know you'll be interested to hear that. Question number one on our 20 questions is always the same. It's, what is your name? My name's Alan Johnson. And we're delighted to have you with us, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Question number two, what do you do? It sounds like it's all sorts of stuff now. (laughs) Well, I'm still a member of Parliament. Uh... For Hull Western Hessel, I do a lot as a backbencher. Hull is next year's UK City of Culture. We've got some big investment going in there. There's a lot of things to get your teeth into as a as a Hull MP. Um, but I'm also writing. So the third volume of my memoirs, The Long and Winding Road, is being published very shortly. Are you enjoying that writing process? I love it. It's, I wish I'd started it earlier in a sense, although the opportunity only came when I stepped down from frontline politics in 2011 so my first memoir was very successful 
second one was very successful. This is the third one that brings it almost up to date. Yeah. And so then I want to start writing fiction. Do you have a little bit more time now you're not on the front bench? Oh, of course. And this fills in the time where ministerial life used to be. So when you're a minister, no matter what ministerial position, health secretary, education secretary, home secretary, which is like 24-7, because you're responsible for all the counter-terrorism, you're the democratic link to what the uh, special security agencies, MI5, do you still have to be a constituency MP. So you still have to do your constituency surgeries. I say it as if it's a onerous thing, but I think it's one of the great successes of our system that you are still grounded in your constituency. So if I introduced something at education, I would go to my constituency surgery and hear people not necessarily aware that I was education secretary, but talking about the policies I'd implemented in, I'd implemented. So I think that link was very important. And once you stop being a minister, which is very, I mean, it's great fun. I'm glad I did it, but it was hard work. That opens up some time to do when you when you're on the shadow front bench. Is that different again? Very different. Yeah, yeah? it's not the same. I mean, yeah, uh, our system is once the electorate chuck you out, you're chucked out. That's the end of your association with the civil service. You get a bit of what's called short money to be able to get some assistance in your shadow job, but your shadow job is nothing like doing the real job. I mean, it's uh, it's chalk and cheese, and yeah. very different, and doesn't take up so much so much time because all you're doing, you know, as Tony Blair famously said, in opposition you wake up every morning and think, what am I going to say? In government you wake up every morning and think about what am I going to do? So you do things in government, you only say things in opposition. Let's go back now for question yep. number three. Where did where did you grow up? Grew up in London West End, sometimes wrongly called Notting Hill. Uh, we didn't see Julia Roberts or Hugh Grant <laughs> round our way very much. You know, Notting this whole swathe of West London has become known generically as Notting Hill. We were in it was North Kensington or Kensal Town or the town as we called it, um, and Notting Hill was West Eleven. Um, it was very poor. It was traditionally very poor right back into you know the 17th 18th century there were the brick fields there and coppers were going around in threes from you know quite almost from the uh, introduction of the police force and where we lived there were a number of houses that were built gerrymandered in the 19th century for a population drift that actually never happened to the west it didn't come about and by the time where well, we were living there in the 50s, they'd been condemned as unfit for human habitation in the 1930s. And we were humans and we were still habitating it. And it was the kind of housing conditions, many of your listeners will remember this, that didn't just, wasn't just in London in that post-war period. It was the kind of squalid, unsanitary conditions that Dickens would have recognised immediately. So there's no running hot water, of course not. There was no... Uh, uh, there was no electricity, just gas. Um, there was traditionally kind of two families on each floor. We were in one room and then in two rooms, four of us. Uh, so usually 16, 20 people in, and one sort of terrible Kazi out the back in the, in mm. the backyard that nobody wanted to go to. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was that post-war period that I tried to capture actually in the first book Um, and a part of London that people think is very gentrified and as I keep pointing out Notting Hill was always gentrified North Kensington where I come from was always poor 
And as you walked up the Portobello Road from Notting Hill to Holland Park, or from North Kensington to North, uh, Holland Park, it was almost like a sociology lesson. You pass through every social class, you know. You were often quite young and brought up by your sister, is that correct? Was it an auntie? I... You know, my sister eventually, yeah. well, my mother, was. so my father went when I was eight. Uh, he ran off with the barmaid from the lads of the village pub. But we were pleased about that because he abused my mother and, you know, came home drunk and he spent his money on gambling and beer and other women. And my poor mother had to find some way of tracking him down. Because in those days, the benefits, and I think the only benefit we got was child child benefit, it went to the husband. So when he went off, it went with him. It was in his wages uh, when he worked, which wasn't very often. He was a piano player, played the piano in pubs and clubs in the evenings, but was a painter and decorator by day. So he went. My mother had a heart condition called mitral stenosis, so she shouldn't have been living in those terrible, squalid conditions, but she also shouldn't have been working, but she had to work do five or six different jobs cleaning and char lady and she died when I was 13 she was in and out of hospital for long periods and then my sister from a very young age was kind of bringing me up and when my mother died then my sister and I managed and by some miracle and a great social worker called Mr Pepper to get a flat by ourselves rather than be taken into care so How old? A sixteen-year-old. Oh, sixteen. By the time we got the flat, a sixteen-year-old and a fourteen-year-old were given. Uh, were actually, I was still thirteen, just coming to fourteen. Were given a uh, two-bedroom flat in uh, in Battersea. We had to move south of the Thames, which was a big trauma for us. But apart from that, it was uh, it was great. And then um, the social worker came round quite often. He said, "This look, this is the condition that you get in this flat. I'm going to be watching over you." taken a big risk. I mean, if I'd have ended up in a back alley, you know, with a heroin needle sticking out of me, then he'd have lost his job. Or, uh, but it was actually, you know, we were fine. So I wanted to say happy childhood. I suppose there were challenges, but some of it will have been happy, I'm sure. Well, I had my mother and my sister kind of, you know, protecting yeah. me from the worst. They went through some terrible times. My mother had a very short and, you know, not a very happy life. My sister was the one who took all the strain and paid off my mother's debts. She wasn't very good with the little money she had. Got them gas and electricity when we eventually got it. Reconnected because they were always being cut off because we hadn't paid our bills. So they dealt with most of that. Um, yeah, I, I sort of, I was a voracious reader and books were really important to me. And it was my mother when we were tiny who dragged us to Labrick Grove Library and instilled in us the importance of reading and books and so you, that was a very... Now everyone, there's books written on it of the importance of reading for small kids. But it wasn't so prevalent then in working-class communities like mine. So living around that area must have been the motivation for becoming a QPR fan then, was it? Of course, yeah, my local team. <laughs> and and so, are you a big football fan? Huge football fan. So football, music, books, uh, my three passions. The classics. Yeah, my three absolute passions. And my father, before he ran off, one of the things he left, gave me when I was very small, was the QPR handbook. Every football club used to have a handbook at the end of the season with all the statistics and yeah. the results and the goal scorers. And he gave me the handbook for 47-48 season, which, as everyone knows, and you will know quite well, Obviously, well of course, yeah. was the season when QPR won the third division south. The only success they'd ever had when I was a kid. Fortunately, they've had a few more since. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great team. If, if, if I wasn't an Evertonian, All right, okay. I would, yeah. I would uh, be and a QPR. If I wasn't a QPR fan, I'd be an Evertonian. Thank you so that much. that was my mum's uh, team. Oh, was it really? She okay. was a scouser. Was she really? That's yeah. interesting. Here's question number four now to Alan Johnson. Um, what's your most treasured possession? Well, think about it. It's this watch I've got on here because it's inscribed by the British Fishermen's Association and it says uh, to Alan, with thanks from the BFA... Uh, and when I became a, an MP in Hull, this story that I write about in my third book, this horror of what how trawlermen were treated. Uh, so these were men in the most dangerous and perilous of occupations. You know, the mortality rate 17 times higher than coal mining. 900 ships lost out of Hull in 150 years of distant water trawling. That's six a year, as well as the men being washed overboard because they fished in the Arctic Oceans, the Barents Sea, Bear Island, Spitsbergen, sometimes 40 degrees below freezing. A terrible, terrible job. And uh, when after the so-called Cod Wars, when the government agreed with Iceland to this 200-mile fishing limit around their coast, that was the end of the distant water fishing industry. And these men were promised compensation. They were promised redeployment, promised retraining. They got nothing. They were classified as casual workers and not even entitled to the minimum which is statutory redundancy they weren't even entitled to that and we fought this long campaign and eventually we succeeded they were great great men and women i mean the wives were the ones on shore these guys would go off for three weeks come back for three days go off for three weeks they worked under the northern lights i mean sounds romantic but the job was just terrible and we got the compensation they gave me this watch and i wear it all the time brilliant for those in peril on the sea. Yeah, absolutely. You don't realise how perilous that is. Uh, so some music now. First record choice. What's it going to be? This is Joni Mitchell. It's from the album Blue. Uh, I could have picked loads of Joni tracks, but this is A Case of You. I could drink A Case of You and still be on my feet. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, track. As you know, it's a podcast and we're not allowed to play the track. But we're back in a moment with more from Alan Johnson on 20 Questions. <laughs> It's 20 Questions with Alan Johnson. And Alan, here's number five now. What's the happiest day of your life? Can you remember what the... What well, was that? Lots, so yeah, that's it's been lots. It's been lots, which is good. But I think, I mean, it's the most recent kind of joy. So, I mean, I've been married a couple of times, but I got married again on the 17th of December last year to Carolyn, my wife, my mm, lovely congratulations. wife. Congratulations. And it was a wonderful day. It's just me and her and two close friends in a registry office. No fuss. No press release to which, so the press say this was married in secret because you don't do a press release. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're very happy. And that day will, I think, live until the next happiest day of my life comes along. That one will do. That's lovely. It's sometimes weddings can get overblown, can't they? The whole ceremony element. And yeah. Just doing yeah. what Well, I've done it three times and uh, <laughs> they've never been huge overblown affairs, but, uh, you know, this one was special. I think the older you get as well, the more you kind of appreciate these things. Where did you meet? Well, Caroline runs a business in my constituency, a translation interpretation business. So I met her uh, when I opened her offices, actually, when she moved into my constituency from just outside from Howden. She came into Central Hull, which is my patch. And I was asked to go and do the official opening. And that's where I met her. 
Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Do you get up there very regularly? I mean, I because you there, have yeah. to. So and you're living up there, there most of the time. Oh, we right. live up there, so, I mean, an MP has to have a place in both, both yeah. where, when you live yeah. that far away, when your constituency's uh, over 200 miles away. So the kind of temporary residence that I have to use is in London. Right. My home's in East Yorkshire. Right. Here's question number six. Uh, what are you scared of, Alan? If anything. War, I think. Um, oh. You know, I think when my kids were small, it was them coming to harm. My youngest is now 15. I think, you know, they can look after themselves. But so I think it's war and that all the effects that would have on your kids. I'm always struck by the fact that that generation that my mother and father came from, for that matter, war was the backdrop to their lives. You know, one war would finish and within 20 years, another war would begin. And they came through all that, the blitz and, and of course, for most of the men fighting in the war, the terrible things they saw. And I kind of grew up with that generation. When I started work as a 15-year-old, the men who'd fought in the war were in their late 30s, early 40s. And as I continued in the post office, lots of them came into the post office because they'd been in uniform. It was a kind of natural progression to come into the GPO, as it was then, as a postman. And I listened to their stories and they never boasted about what happened to them. They would only talk to each other and you could catch them. They would sit at the canteen tables, depending on what regiment they'd been in. Yeah. Um, and I just always feared that that would happen again with much more disastrous consequences. And there have been wars, of course, uh, fought elsewhere, but we've never had a world war. And we've never had a war that started on our continent as two world wars did in the 20th century. Do you potentially fear for that as we move in different directions? I don't think you can ever be complacent. It was one of my arguments about the European Union. The European Union was formed at the end of the First World War, the great Jean Monnet, to, as in Churchill's terms, replace World War with George Orwell, so that countries like France, Germany, Britain, who'd always been fighting and fighting and fighting for centuries, would never go to war again. And I don't think you can be complacent about about that, particularly when you look at what's happening just on the borders of us, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's some of the things that are happening, you know, uh, throughout what was formerly the Soviet Union. Could be a scary time ahead. I think so. An uncertain time ahead. And uncertainty is always frightening. You mentioned the GPO there on a lighter note. I know a few postmen and there was a great camaraderie among people who work in the post office, isn't there? Yeah, I tried to capture that in my second book, just to give a plug, please, Mr. Yeah, Postman. No. And I, it was something to do about starting work at 4.30 in the morning. I don't know what it was, you know. It, there was an incredible camaraderie. But there was also the uniform. There was also the feeling you were carrying out an important public service. You were, I wouldn't say loved, but you were respected by the public like no other state in the state's institution people love to see the postmen and women in rural areas in particular i mean when i was a rural postman i used to deliver coal i used to deliver potatoes for the farmer to you know used to take the odd sack of manure (laughs) to the market gardener (laughs) uh and the odd customer in the back who wanted a lift into town completely against the rules and all that so you were an important part of the social fabric of this country I th- I think I hope it still exists to a certain extent. Oh, they anyway. still are. Yeah, I shouldn't say that in the past. Still yeah, are because uh, they're guardians, aren't they? I mean, yeah. we've had a knock on the door. Is Brenda next door? I haven't seen her this exactly. morning. That sort of stuff. Exactly, and that's still an important part of. There's one delivery now in town areas rather than the two deliveries. Mm. 
they've been privatised in Royal Mail and they've been separated away from the Countess network, all of which I think are entirely negative things. But there's still that important link and they are the only people to pass all 23.5 million addresses in this country six day, at least once, six days a week. Yeah, yeah very important. Um, number seven now to Alan Johnson. Who was, who is your hero? I've got three, actually. So in the world of football, it was Rodney Marsh, the greatest player oh. I've ever seen grace a <laughs> football pitch. Rodney was uh, idolised at Queen's Park Rangers and he wasn't the kind of, Alf Ramsey played him seven times for England, but he he was a complete one. He was a showman. He wanted to entertain the crowd. And I've seen Rodney do things with a ball that I've never seen any other footballer do. Uh, so he's my footballing hero, Paul McCartney. I just love the Beatles. The Beatles, we'll talk more about them in a minute, but they they changed the world and they changed my life as a 13-year-old when they came on the scene. Um, Paul McCartney was someone I always idolised and wanted to look like uh, when I was a kid. And George Orwell, who uh, my English teacher introduced me to Animal Farm when I was 14. In fact, I got the whole class reading through and explaining the subtext of the Bolshevik Revolution. It was very clever. And I went out and read all the Orwell stuff I could. And I always think what would Orwell have said about this? You know, he died young. Um, and his views, his in his essays and in his pieces for Tribune uh, were just so cogent and if anything he was the kind of figure on the left that I I always admired who was my I might, never met me but would, was my mentor yeah and with you on McCartney as well and Rodney Marsh great yeah, uh, yeah. great player number nine is a bit of a daft question really who was the last person you spoke to on the phone before you came in this room my wife <laughs> on the mobile very often the case very yeah. often the case okay time for your second record now what's this one going to be this is elvis costello who uh, to me is an absolute genius he's up there with lennon mccartney uh, but a much longer um catalogue of work of course over so many years and it's brilliant mistake from the king of america album this is Alan Johnson on 20 Questions. And sadly, of course, it's a podcast, so we can't play the track. But more in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's 20 Questions with Alan Johnson. And Alan, here's number 10 now. Have you got any awards? Can be for anything. I've got quite a few, actually, but I sound <laughs> immodest to mention. No, no, it's good. Uh, I have one politician to watch, which Spectator uh, does every year, uh, way back, you know, I don't know, 2003, uh, 2004, maybe. Politician of the Year, uh, Channel 4 used to do. I won that. And then my books, this boy won the Orwell Prize for political writing, and, which ironically, because George Orwell was one yeah. of my heroes, and the Royal Society of Literature Ondaatje Prize, which was about... Evocation of place, and it was about you know they they said recreating that post-war bleak West London climate, and then please, Mister Postman won the National Book Club Biography of the Year. So quite a few there, and uh, I'm glad you asked. Yes, I, I wouldn't have proffered that information off my own back. Well, politician to watch leads me to a couple of questions. Um, you were thinking, or you were mooted as potentially being a mayoral candidate for London. Well, I was mooted as being Labour Party leader, which was when that well, came I... from, from 2003. There was the prospect of, of many people were saying, why don't you become London Mayor? The problem for me was that I was so happy as an MP in Hull. And if I'd have said I was interested in London Mayor, you'd have to be nominated two years before the mayoral election. And that's fine if you're a London MP or even on the even on the peripheries of London. Boris was a Henley MP mm. just out. If you're an MP in the north, your constituents think you've deserted them. You know, hang on, you've been up here, you've been a Hull MP at that time for, for what, 13 years? And now you, you, you're our MP, but you're the candidate for London Mayor. So I felt that was that was too difficult. In a sense, that was letting down. I'd just been elected, re-elected as Hull MP. And I thought I'd rather actually do things in Hull than, than in my city of my birth. So, fair London. comment. You mentioned, though, the leadership of the Labour Party. Uh, was that something you fancied? No. You know, I'd just been appointed health secretary then. By the time Gordon was stepping down and we'd lost and there was the prospect of a coalition government with the Lib Dems, they went and talked to the Tories. It was hung parliament. Then they came to talk to us for a couple of days. And at that stage, I would have thrown my hat in the ring. Oh. because Gordon would have had to have stepped down. That was there, and he knew he was going to step down anyway. And it was going to be a three-year coalition, that's what we were talking about, just to get through the worst of the financial crisis. And rather than kind of waste any of the young talent, I thought that might be a job for me. But it didn't come off, and they went and talked to the Conservatives, quite rightly, because they were the biggest party. 
and uh, that was it. We were out of government. A lot of people think it was a miss that you didn't well, get nice into it. That, mm. But if you 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 have to really want to be the leader. I mean, it's a god awful, thankless task. I mean, the rest of your life is going to be taken over by it if you aspire to be the prime minister. And you have to want to do it. You have to have the passion to do it. And I've got every respect for the people who generally do want to do it from whatever party. I didn't. It wasn't part of my game plan. Let's move on to question number 11 now. Far more trivial. And this is about food. And do you do any cooking? And if I so, do. I love cooking. So what's I your signature I'm dish? I'm good at it. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say spaghetti puttanesco is the one I uh, oh, talk me through that. do the most. Oh, it's... Uh, kind of vegetarian except there's anchovies in there so you, know, you just fry up a bit of garlic put a bit of chili in there uh, then you got uh, capers uh, olives black pitted olives make sure they're pitted right. uh, a can of tomatoes chopped tomatoes uh, and then do the spaghetti. It's lovely. It's that healthy Southern European diet with lots of oils yeah, in it, isn't yeah, it yeah but that chili combination of chili capers Olives and garlic really is kind of something special. I mean, the, the Italians... I love French cooking, but I, I think the, the Italians vie with them for... Yeah, for yeah. Are you a vegetarian? Place. Is that, is, is, no, is that just by no, chance? No, I was for a, for a few years, oh, but really? I couldn't... Uh, but I, I don't eat a great deal of meat. Mm, I think it's right, probably wise. So, for the uh, Puginesco, we're going to have uh, four people to dinner, dead or alive. Who are they going to be? Question number 12. They would be Paul McCartney reasons i've already mentioned and i did meet him once which i recalled in my in my book uh Susanna york uh philip larkin philip larkin the great poet who was born in coventry but hull was where his genius blossomed he worked at the university spent 30 years writing his poetry there and another hallensian maureen lipman who's done this program has she? Yeah, she was fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. We're very proud of her in yeah. Hull. Why Susanna York? Any particular? I just love Susanna York mm. uh, for lots of reasons. Number one, I fancied her yeah. when I was younger. Uh, I think she's just absolutely beautiful. I think she's a great actress. I almost met her. We were in the same restaurant once. I was on a different table, but didn't have the courage to go up and say. I mean, she was, you know, one of those. Char- almost, I could have put her in my heroes. You yeah. know. Um, I just thought she was such an amazing actress and such a beautiful woman. Yeah. Here's question number 13 to Alan Johnson now. Um, you travel a lot, presumably, certainly in the UK, but abroad as well, I guess? Yeah. If there's one place you'd say we should really go to on the planet, where would that be? I'm afraid it's going to be Hallanese riding. Uh because it is, Larkin called it Isolate City. And if you talk to people and you say, have you ever been? Well, I'll ask you, Rob, have you ever been to Hull? I have. Oh, right. Okay. Most people say no. Because mm. if you w- go to Hull, you have to want to go to Hull. It's closer to Rotterdam than to London. It's oh, that's a good one, 36 right. miles that. from the nearest yeah. city. It's, it's the end of the line. Yeah. And some people pass through it to go across on the ferries to, yep. to Zabrugger or. Done that. Yep. Yeah, all yep. that to Bruges. And. Um, so not many people have been there, and it, for some reason it gets its reputation. It's a very working-class city. Um, it's a beautiful place. My predecessors are Andrew Marvel, the poet, William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade as the MP for Hull. He was born, in, born and bred in Hull. Great poet, Stevie Smith, not waving but drowning. Um, Marvel himself was a great poet to his coy mistress. 
uh, Douglas Dunn, Philip Larkin, all these, Andrew Motion. Um, an amazing city. And next year it's UK City of Culture and people should be able to come up and see it. And then go out and see Spurn Point and see Sunk Island. Uh, amazing places that were once part of Holland, you know, before mm. I know, the Ice Age or whenever they separated. Um, but very, very distant and very um, beautiful in its isolation. The city of culture thing, I think, is a great thing. I'm a Liverpudlian, and we were a city of culture yeah, a while back, and it regenerated thing. so much. Yeah, um, you, I mean, UK city of culture was a British uh, was a Labour kind of invention, but by the time it was being implemented, the Tories were in, and thankfully they saw it as a, as as really important. So Londonderry was the first one in 2013. Hull will be the second. And if they do this right, they can use culture and the arts to, as part of the regeneration of a city. Because the reason why we got it is because the focus on our future, not our past, not our cultural heritage, is w- the way we could use culture with Hull Truck Theatre and all the music and the wonderful stuff that's going on there to actually bring more people in and to get more wealth into the city and get more jobs. Yeah. Time for your third record now. What's it going to be? My third record is The Beatles. Now, I could have made all five. If you wanted 50 of my favourite songs, I could get you 50 from The Beatles. I think She's Leaving Home from Sgt Pepper's. Um, I, I think it was Leonard Bernstein who wrote West Side Story who said that it was equal to uh, anything that... Um, uh, that not Beethoven, some great uh, composer ever wrote. And it is a, it's almost a classical uh, song and it's just stunningly beautiful. Big Beatle fan, Alan Johnson. And as this is a podcast, we're not cleared to play the track, but you know which one we're talking about. More from Alan Johnson in a minute. It's 20 Questions with Alan Johnson and here's question number 14 now, Alan. Um, taking you back, if you met the 18-year-old you, what would you think and what would you say to the 18-year-old Alan Johnson? Well, the 18-year-old me had just got married and because I'd had my gear nicked once again and my precious precious Hofner Very Thin guitar when I was uh, with the In-Betweens, which was a multiracial band, very unusual in the 60s. Those days, yeah. Um, and I just decided that I'd go get a proper job, so I'd just become a postman. And I just got married and I thought I'd go back to music. I think what I'd probably say to my 18-year-old self is, you're a bit young to get married and I hope, I know what you, I hope you know what you're doing. Because if any of my kids got married at 18, I'd have, you know, I'd have been saying, hey, come on, you know. Yeah. And now, of course, people get married much later. Yeah. It wasn't so unusual then. No. no. Um, but I think I'd give those words... Uh, you know, just to test out. But, you know, I'd been sort of living on my own because of my back. So I'd been living in digs when, since I was 15 when my sister got married. So it wasn't such a great move or such an unusual. In a way, I was trying to get back into family life. So was my first wife, who was also an orphan. We were trying to get into family life when our mates were trying to get away from it. So I had kind of unusual circumstances. Very unusual. We think today of a 15-year-old. Living on his own. My son, I think of my son who's 15 now, my youngest son. I can't imagine him living on his own or going out to work, but that's what (laughs) he did then, you know. Different. At 18, 
just had the guitar nicked. Could you ever think of anything other than being in a band? Did you ever no. even imagine that you might have been a politician? Funny enough, being a writer, I, I always wanted to be a writer from when I was 13, 14, because I enjoyed reading books and I wouldn't want it to have a crack myself. I used to write short stories and send them off to magazines and get the rejection slips, but never a politician, never in a million years a politician. And what got you into that? What was I was basically, I got involved in the trade union movement, the, the great vehicle of social mobility that no one talks about. The trade union movement has been responsible for so many kids like me, left school with no qualifications, had this, all these educational opportunities. If you become a trade union representative, you've got to learn how to, you've got to learn public speaking, you've got to make speeches, you've got to learn how to negotiate, you've got to write letters on behalf of your members. And it was a great, great uh, apprenticeship for politics they're not as strong as they used to be or are they no they're not well they're not as uh, not as many members so it's 13 million at the end of the 70s and now it's less than 6 million but but i think society is the worst for that and the reason i mentioned social mobility is everyone talks about including the current prime minister the first thing she said you know she really cares about social mobility well trade unions uh, we're an important part of that uh, social mobility. And I think the reason why there's such inequality in wages, for instance, now uh, between, you know, when I was a postman, the top person in a post office probably got something like 20 times my salary. They now get something like 200 times my salary. And all of that inequality is because the trade unions are not there and or not there they're still doing a wonderful job on education and all the rest of it and in the, in the industries that are unionized they're doing an excellent job there but not so many workplaces are unionized here's number 15 now um we're going to assume you're a bit older so what's it like and what are the benefits of being older and wiser i've got a rather frivolous answer to this but in a sense it's uh, it's heartfelt Marks and Spencer's trousers with the flexible waistband is the best thing about getting older. Number one, I'd have never worn anything from Marks and Spencer's when I was a young mod. And number two, I was so skinny I didn't need the, that wonderful... Whoever invented it, maybe it was Marks and Spencer's themselves, but you can't get them anywhere else. That kind of <laughs> elasticated waistband that allows you to fit around your extending paunch i can see you're just a slip of a lad rob uh, you won't need it is uh, a good thing about getting older i think you're still in good nick i've got to tell you <laughs> very much so um here's number 16 now and i wonder if it's the person you've already mentioned were you ever starstruck at all yeah, you, the, you've met lots of people of course but the beatles starstruck the beatles throughout my life uh, have been they've been the soundtrack they've been an inspiration they changed the world and so when I actually came face to face with Paul McCartney, I didn't, I couldn't speak. And I had a cup of tea and a salmon sandwich in my hand at uh, this event at the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, which you'll know yeah, very Lipper, well, Lipper, yeah. that mm. Paul uh, sponsored with a guy called Mark um, Featherston Witty, I think it is, yeah. the two together. And I was higher education minister and they asked me to go and make a speech at their, their graduation. And he suddenly popped up in front of me while I was drinking this tea. I thought maybe someone at some stage might take me over to him. I didn't dream for a minute that Mark would bring him to me. And I kind of was eating a sandwich and, and looked up and there was the man who'd been my hero since I was 12, 13 years of age, standing in front of me saying, all right, you're all right. <laughs> 
starstruck, absolutely starstruck. Here's question number 17 now. It's a complete day off for Alan Johnson. Um, so, um, what are you going to do? There might be a book, might be a film, might be nothing at all. What, what, what would you do? Uh, I'd do both. If you want me to pick a book and a film, I'd pick anything by P.G. Woodhouse. I discovered P.G. Woodhouse when I was a kid, 13, 14. I love uh, both the Jeeves books and the Smith books and anything he writes. So any Because P- it's a total distraction it just takes you out yourself it's so entertaining uh and they're not long books so i could read it in a day and the film would be babette's feast it's a wonderful swedish film it won a lot of awards back what 40 years ago when it was my early 80s and um it's this wonderful uh going back to what you talked about cooking this wonderful top class chef a woman who ends up in this bleak part of Jutland in Denmark with these people who live very, very simple lives. And she ends up amongst them. I won't bore you to say how, but at some stage she decides to give this community a feast. She's won a bit of money and she brings over all this stuff and cooks this meal. And the film, not just for the cooking that would get your juices flowing, but seeing these people these stern people these calvinistic people who'd only ever had kind of still water and a a kind of fried egg tasting this wonderful food i mean it's just a brilliant moment in film history fantastic so next record choice now this is by richard thompson i've always loved richard thompson uh he's um got a cult following uh i say he's never broken into mainstream he's never had a number one hit record but People love him, and so do I. And this is a track called I Misunderstood. Sorry we're not clear to play the music on this podcast, but more from Alan Johnson in a minute. It's 20 Questions with Alan Johnson. Now, Alan, very difficult question, this one. If you could live a year of your life again, which one would it be? It would be a very recent year. It would be... 2013 14 it would be a 12 month period but covering that yeah not a football season sadly okay. although at the end of that season qpr won the playoff final against yeah. derby county at wembley and i was there but it was the year when i published my first book it got tremendous acclaim i won those two prizes i mentioned earlier towards the end of that year into 2014 i actually went from wembley watching qpr to the hay festival for the first time uh, and I entered a world I'd never known before, the world of book festivals, which is wonderful, amazes me. You know, sometimes a thousand people turn up just to hear you talk about your book and you have a chat afterwards and they take questions. And uh, a book doesn't exist until someone's read it. So when you get your first letter, when the reviews are very important, my reviews are very good, but when you get the first letter from a reader, it's a very intimate moment and when you get lots more emails and letters from people who have taken the time and trouble to tell you how much they enjoyed this book that you slaved over that is a part of you that is just so rewarding and that year was just amazing what prompted you to write the first one then there was interest in an alan johnson book and my agent at the time he's now gone off to do other things but andrew kidd an American, probably the only American who's a Queen's Park Rangers season ticket holder, but that was just coincidence, uh, said to me, why don't you write, never mind about the usual kind of quite boring political memoirs, why don't you write about your childhood? You've not said much about it. 
people know that you know you had a tough childhood why not write about it and the challenge of being my mother's biographer who died when I was very young and kind of making her live again on the page that really is what inspired me Um, and once I'd done the first one which was the only one I intended to write then you know there was people saying well we want to know how you got from there to there and the idea of the second one came along and then the third and you know I was into the world of writing and publishing Second one was Please, Mr. Postman. Yeah. Obviously about that time. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's trying to describe the GPO that I joined, uh, but it's also those men who fought the Second World War who I worked with uh, and uh, bringing up kids on a council estate. I don't see why I felt I had to kind of reinstate the reputation of council estates, but somehow I think I do. People suggest that they were all rough and terrible I mean they were they were great they saved us from the slums and also the reputation of the trade union movement so there's a lot about my nascent career and the trade union movement there as well so it covers another sort of 20 year span and then roughly the synopsis on the latest book Long and Winding Road is I become general secretary of the union and then for a variety of reasons you'll read about in the book my antipathy towards becoming a politician kind of dissolved because I was given this huge opportunity look there's a seat vacant do you want to stand for it and it was as simple as that that's how I ended up in Hull Western Hethel so I describe all that up to 2009 and becoming Home Secretary and obviously a Paul McCartney title there Uh, yeah absolutely so that title they're all Beatles titles takes us very nicely around to number 19 what does the future hold well I hope writing fiction I mean I've got to cut the mustard um but I've had this opportunity that many people who want to write don't get in that there was publishers coming to me asking if I'd write a book back when Andrew Kidd was my agent. Um, now, having done three, hopefully a third book will be successful, three successful books, I'm going to have a crack at fiction. I don't think you're a writer until you've developed character and plot. And it's a challenge but it's a challenge I'm relishing and we'll see how I get on if it's no good my publisher won't publish it he won't publish it because it's by Alan Johnson he'll only publish it if it's of a good standard Um, so I see that as being the next important step as well as working for my constituents obviously as member of parliament for whole western Hesel and enjoying city of culture next year final question is number 20 to Alan Johnson what's your motto it's uh, it's from Shakespeare from Hamlet uh, Polonius's advice to Laertes to this above all to thine own self be true final record choice What's it final record choice is the Beach Boys uh, wouldn't it be nice from the classic Pet Sounds 50 years old today 50th anniversary of Pet Sounds this of course was the opening track it's just buoyant and and for any youngster who from our gener- my generation you're you're younger but my generation when it was such so difficult to get a girl on your own and you know you do either in your parents front room or whatever i've had a bit more license but this you know wouldn't it be nice uh if we could kiss kiss goodnight and stay together this is uh and there's just an innocence about it and it's a wonderful tune and it just i find it uplifting every time i listen to it alan johnson thanks very much thank you rob And thank you for listening to this 20 Questions podcast. And there's more where that came from.
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.